welcome to this edition of Rail Group on Air, our podcast brought to you by Railway Age, Railway Track and Structures, and International Railway Journal. This is Railway Age Editor-in-Chief, William C. Vantuono. Our guests today are Joe Giulietti, who is the Connecticut Department of Transportation Commissioner, uh, Richard Andreski, who is uh, Public Transportation Bureau Chief for CONDOT, this is brought to you also by Kelly Ann Gallagher and the Commuter Rail Coalition. This is part of our uh, Commuter Rail Coalition series. Kelly Ann, thank you again for uh, for facilitating these uh, these podcasts. Appreciate it. Of course, we're always happy to join you. All right. So our theme today is transformation and innovation in the commuter rail realm. So uh, let's start with uh, transformation. So. Yes, I think our industry is being transformed, some would say disrupted by new technologies like automation, shared mobility, mobile devices, broadband, internet. Uh, As we know, it's possible to work from anywhere at any time. So this is a societal transformation. It's been underway for a while, but it has been accelerated by uh, the coronavirus uh, pandemic. Commuter rail customers almost disappeared practically overnight. But I think uh, we know that they will come back. But there are unknowns. Uh, So the questions to ask here, uh, what will a new normal look like? And how does the commuter rail industry or public transportation in general adjust to it? Well, first, you're right to go and say that even prior to COVID-19, we were looking at a major transformation. Uh, Kellyanne can tell you when we kicked off, and I'm one of the founding members for the Commuter Rail Coalition, we were all getting together and discussing what was going on in our industry. Because now, you know, as we would turn around and we would call them the essential workers, but the workforce was changing out there in terms of particularly the hospital care workers, the the, uh, warehouse workers, where the commuting day for them was going down to these four 10-hour days or three 12-hour days and more and more of the people in the industry were noticing that Friday was becoming the new Saturday with less and less people riding. We were losing the regular fares from commuter rail, buying the monthly pass to more and more people, not seeing the value in the monthly pass as the number of days that they were commuting into a central location was changing. So for us as an industry, we were looking at how are we going to have to change to meet the new norm, all of this being prior to COVID-19. So, you know, we were seeing the changes, but we were also almost in a stranglehold because with all the changes going on, it wasn't changing the fact that there was more and more demand and the demand was coming outside of the normal commuting hours. So we watched our off-peak ridership going up. We watched our early morning ridership going up, (coughs) our late evening ridership going up. And in some ways, um, if there were... (laughs) I don't want to give anything a positive to COVID-19, but COVID-19 allowed for all of us to do a reset in what was going on. For I'll say I'm on a panel with the seven states in the Northeast where we're all talking about how it's impacting us every week we get together on a call so that we're there we can jointly discuss what's happening. What it's allowed us to do is take a look at, for example, I didn't have enough rail cars. We were in the middle of getting more M8s. As the M8s were coming in, 
We had no idea how we were going to be able to do it. We were looking at the fact that our lease could run out on the Hartford line with the cars that we had leased from Massachusetts. Massachusetts needed more cars. Everyone needed more cars. And there was a demand in the industry that unfortunately it takes about four to five years to get cars. So we were all behind the eight ball trying to meet the demand that was there. And suddenly overnight the demand was gone. So now talk about what happens when you're faced with that. I was very fortunate to have a very progressive governor. When we first talked about it, the things that came up in that conversation was the only way that I know to come out of any sort of a recession or God forbid a depression is by investment in infrastructure. So the governor was extremely supportive and wanted to keep all construction going. So for us, it meant one, we could now look at, could we test the M8s on the shoreline? Could we make the original plan that we could use them over there and release some of the cars that we were using on the shoreline and be able to use them on the Hartford line? The same time this was going on, if there was ever a time to see a direct correlation between what was going on with the rail systems and the bus systems and the highway systems, COVID-19 taught us a lot. We watched the traffic on the highways drop down. We watched our rail traffic drop down to about 9% of its normal. Bus traffic originally dropped down to about 30%. And the first one to come back was the bus traffic. We were going now at about 60 or 70%. New Jersey is much higher, Rhode Island higher, Massachusetts higher. The commuter rail, unfortunately going into the city we're finally getting to maybe about 15% after Labor Day. Our interest rate within the state of Connecticut bounced back up and it's probably closer to the 40 or 50% and we may see that it's going higher. So from the standpoint that it truly did get a, a massive change for how we were responding to these things, we saw that we had to constantly be looking at what the integration was gonna be and the correlation between the different modes of service and how were we gonna be able to deal with that. So I had an opportunity on the highway side to, instead of giving work at night, moving that work onto, onto days and, and uh, being able to give out more and more miles of paving so that way there we were in a position that um, we could increase the productivity at a time when you know work could be done, the problem being, of course, that I'm also measuring that against what's left of the budget as we go through. Right, and you have to balance uh, everything as commissioner of transportation for the state. It's not just rail, it's everything, roads, bridges, you name it. Yep, I've got also, I said on the airport board and the seaport board. So yes, it's freight, passenger rail, highway operations, Construction along the highway, all of it falls into the Department of Transportation. I'm very, very fortunate to have a, an extremely well-disciplined and good department. So I mentioned that we started increasing the work that was going on on the highways. We also increased the work that was going on on our rail systems. It gave us an opportunity while we were trying to get the positive train control finished, finish a catenary job that had begun a good 30 years ago, get construction done on the, on the main line and get construction done on the branch lines. We shut the Waterbury line down, for example, and operated it with buses because it was the only way that we could complete all the work and 
do it when it provided the least amount of impact. And in fact, because of the low density of, of vehicles on the road, the buses right now are, are actually providing a quicker service uh, with them being able to run some express buses down the Waterbury than our rail service was able to do. But now with the completion of the signal system and everything else, we will be able to run a much more competitive Waterbury line. Now, so, I just wanted to clarify, when you say main line, you're speaking about the corridor, what everybody else might know as, as the Northeast Corridor, correct? That is correct. And, and I'm so glad that you said that because whenever I do that, you know, it almost comes off that I'm not bringing into play the Hartford line, which has been a tremendous success as well as Shoreline East, which is part of that corridor going across, but we've got different operators operating on each one of those systems going forward. The only thing that was in common was the impact that the COVID-19 had was on all corridors. Um, and I will also share with you one of my problems when you talked about trying to balance things out. When the CARES Act came through, the only one that didn't get any funding was the Hartford line because they declared it as a high-speed rail line, not a commuter line, so it was ineligible for the CARES funding. So it's the only system that I'm still working with the Connecticut delegation and our partners at FRA and FTA, and uh, as well as Federal Highway, to try and get some funding that can help offset the fact that we've lost all the revenue there. The other thing that we lost in the middle of all this was the, you know, when you, the ridership went down, obviously revenue streams went down. And on the bus side, because we were so careful to try and protect all the bus drivers that were out there, we turned around and suspended the ticketing, calling it an honor system, shutting the front door, having everybody get on the rear door and blocking off that area to try and protect our bus drivers. And we're still a week or two away from where we're going to finally be able to start collecting fares again because we've now been able to shield the bus drivers uh, by putting up protective barriers for them coming forward. So I've given you kind of a long answer on, you know, um, what what was going on and what, what had happened and, you know, what we were trying to deal with as we talked about the new reality going forward. Uh, but, you know, from the standpoint that one, it was something we were already trying to deal with. It got accelerated by what happened with COVID-19. And the truth of the matter is, we're all trying to adjust to it. Um, I'll give you one other example. You know, I'm on that call. Massachusetts had no idea what the ridership was going to be like through all of this. So what they chose to do was they put all of their workers on spare boards and were putting people, trains out on an as-needed basis while they developed a schedule based on what they were seeing was happening. What we were able to do with Metro North was we dropped it down to about 67% of the normal ridership, normal train program going forward. And that's what we've been operating on that line. And similar, we picked up a little bit on the Hartford line and a little bit on the Shoreline East. But that's what we're trying to do as we're trying to measure our response based on how we see people are returning to work. Joe, can you just explain uh, how could the Hartford line be designated a high-speed route? That that doesn't something doesn't click there. Oh, shame <laughs> on you! I'm, I'm going to give you a hard time over that one. Okay. Because, you know, uh, and, and, and let, uh, let me be clear as to why I am. You know, I I I was down in Florida and had spent a lot of time negotiating for Florida to get the high-speed rail money, and as you know. They got 1.3 billion that was sent back to the federal government. 
Uh, and when they did, um, the people in Hartford and the people in California, particularly the unions, cheered and thanked the, uh, the then governor for the you know, continued donation to their service. The Hartford line, which does run at 100 miles an hour, is a high-speed rail line. It was, uh, and that's why I said not only was it, you know, a, a successful high-speed rail line, a successful public high-speed rail line that took two states and the and the uh, the works of the legislature in both states and uh, the congressmen and senators from both states to go and get the money approved for it. It exceeded all ridership expectations up to COVID-19, and um, not only that, it's been a model for the fact that we have two different operators operating that line at the high speeds. Uh, we have one that's done by Amtrak and we have the TASI, which is a, a, um, a joint operation. And Amtrak ends up honoring the tickets from either operation to go down that line as it's going forward. So it's, it's truly been a novel approach to how to put a new service in and, you know, I say it's new service. I actually used to operate trains on it before, you know, it's another one of those stories. In the 1970s, it was an active freight line. Mm -hmm. 91 went in, suddenly freight was down. So what did they do? They got rid of most of the second track, became very, very impossible to operate a passenger service on it. So little by little, we've gone back to the same thing we've done everywhere else where we start putting in a second track. We almost have it completed all the way through on a second track. And we now have a high-speed rail service that's operating out of there very successfully prior to COVID-19. Okay, uh, fair enough. Uh, I, I guess uh, <laughs> at least in North America, uh, uh, 100 miles an hour would, uh, would be high speed or maybe, maybe more accurate would be higher speed or high-performance rail. Mm, actually, uh -huh. hey, Rich, do you want to jump in on this? I'll ask Rich because Rich is more intimately involved with how we got the designation of high-speed rail. Yes, we're, we're, I know we're splitting hairs here, but I think it might be useful to uh, have some clarification. Well, well sure, high-speed rail. Thanks, Bill. Um, you know, high-speed high rail is defined differently by different people. Uh, we see high-speed rail as, as uh, a substantial improvement over what was uh, there previously. So uh, maximum speeds were 79 miles an hour. And we, within the existing right-of-way, were able to um, straighten curves, uh, increase super elevation and underbalance. And what we um, achieved is ultimately, when we get new rail cars and new locomotives, we'll actually be able to get up to 110 miles an hour, ultimately. We're not there yet, um, but, um, you know, and, and that, that uh, saves something like eight minutes on the trip between Springfield and New Haven. Now, Eight minutes to folks outside our industry may seem trivial, but eight minutes on a rail ride that's only 62 miles long is a, is a pretty significant accomplishment. And um, it, it really is, is the way I think, and just this is where it's my opinion and really not a fact, is that I, I think that's the way we need to evolve our rail system. And, you know, I think we all like to dream big and, and dream of a European style. Um, high-speed system, I, I, I'd be very excited to see that, but I think the realities of our land use uh, patterns are, you know, highly developed coastline, um, sensitivity around environmental impacts. I just, I think incrementalism is, is how we're going to get there. Well, I remember uh, going all the way back to uh, when I started with Railway Age back in 1992, talking about incremental high-speed rail. That's when Amtrak was uh, 
yeah. testing the uh, the Swedish train, the X two thousand tilting train, and you know, yeah. and, and we're still we're still working on on that basis of improving what what we've got. So yes, so okay, for all intents and purposes, it it is it is a, a high speed line. Uh, any well, any improvement in trip time and and speed uh, is 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 a good thing. It's a plus. And and here you're 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 coming into you know, we've touched on a couple of other issues that, you know, um, got to remember, I, I started in 71 on, on the corridor here. And uh, I've been a conductor, I've been an engineer, I've worked in every department. And, you know, when I came back in 2014, I was shocked to find out, for example, what we called the raceway, which was down around New Rochelle, where we had finally gotten to 95 miles an hour. And you'll remember that in order to go above 79, you had to have a cab signal system. Yes. Otherwise, you could not take your trains above 79. So we were buying equipment that had the ability to go over 100 miles an hour. But we were finally able to run some at 95. And I come back, and it's back down to 80 miles an hour, 85 miles an hour. And when I tried to figure out why it was, it be was because it wasn't worth the investment to keep it at the higher range because they didn't see a value with the density of the trains going into New York that they were gonna be able to get in any quicker. We've replaced that now with a challenge. I've got a governor that, you know, and, and Rich mentioned eight minutes. When the FRA came out um, after the incident and put a number of speed restrictions on after we had spite and dival and they decided that until we had positive train control, uh, we had to further restrict the speeds that were on the line. Towns that had gained 10 minutes and crossed that threshold of being over an hour to go to New York, if you ever went with me to those town meetings, it was almost like a mob scene that we had affected the value of all their homes because they could no longer advertise that it was 55 minutes into New York City. or So, so sure. there is a direct correlation between the speeds that you're able to, well, times that you're able to do. And Rich has pointed out another very critical part. There's an awful lot that we can do on the main line to change underbalance, raise the standards, okay, and work within the existing structure to truly operate our trains at the speeds that those lines will allow. And now with modeling taking the changes that it has and the opportunities we have, particularly on the New Haven line to also go into Penn Station, we are now freeing up windows or potentially freeing up windows that will allow for quicker times into the, into, uh, in this case, I'm gonna talk about New York City, which right now is the slowest market to return of all the markets that we have. So we have to be looking at creative ways. And that's one of the reasons I think we have a lot of support with Amtrak right now. They've wanted forever to, to be able to increase the speeds so that they can get through these corridors quicker. And we're in, we're in um, a like mind on that because a lot that can be done here on that and a lot that we're trying to do right now in terms of cleaning up construction while we have an opportunity to do it with the rail traffic being down. So let's talk about uh, customers and their, and sure. their perception. Uh, as, as you mentioned, the, the uh, you know, less than 55 minutes uh, in, in, into New York City and, and now it's over an hour and people are jumping up and down screaming and rightfully so. So uh, I think that's fairly good uh, argument for saying that rail transportation in all forms remains hugely popular. It is important to uh, social and economic progress uh, and also playing an important role in addressing climate change. But 
how well do our meaning customers, passenger rail customers, understand this? Uh, you you recently conducted a, a customer survey. You yep. asked uh, your customers to share their thoughts on rail service and what it would take to get them back on the train. So talk about that. Well, first off, yes. Um, what we ended up finding was that, you know, the new, and, and, I, and we'll, we'll both use the term, the new norm. Um, I'll tell you as a commissioner, where originally we were told we would not be able to handle the bandwidth of so many people working from home and everything else, we found out that technology's come a long way and we've been tremendously successful, even at the DOT, with having people being able to do their work from home and keep all of the construction work going, all the, the applications going. So this same thing is going on in the industry. Um, the people that you know were commuting into New York that are now working from home have been able to successfully work from home. So when we turned around and asked the commuters, you know, about um, you know going back in, almost 50% of them, um, and I want to let me use the, the uh, right numbers, okay, were turning around and saying that they expected their future commute to change from the fact that they weren't going to be going in there five days a week anymore that they expected that it was going to be more like going in a couple days a week. And we're actually hoping that after Labor Day, we're gonna see that starting to go into effect in areas like New York. Now, I will tell you that there was a lot of apprehension over getting back on the trains. It put us in a position, all the systems, when I say us, I'm, I'm talking for the industry, of how do you assure the customers that it's safe to get back on the trains? Uh, at the same time that we were doing the surveys, we, were, we in Connecticut were working with Yale and New York was working with a couple of other universities, Boston was working with another, New Jersey was working with Tufts. We were all going through an analysis of the safety aspects of the train and the fact that um, it was surprising, but you know, our, our cars actually change out the entire air inside the car every five minutes. So, you know, from a standpoint that it really is a safe means of going in. The customers need to know that that, that comfort level is there. And I gotta tell you on the commuter rail side, only 22% felt that it was somewhat comfortable to go in there, okay? And 8% said it was very comfortable. So you're talking 30% felt comfortable with going into the, taking the train again. Um, you know, a little bit, uh, a little bit concerning from the standpoint that there's still a perception out there that until there is a vaccine, there's a lot of concern over whether or not you can do it. So now when you say, you know, let, let's step out of the customer perspective for a second, when we're trying to plan for how we're going to respond, we looked on the fact that at first it was thought that after Labor Day, when the kids were returning to school, that a lot of the workers, particularly in a lot of the businesses down in New York City, would come back in. They've only come back in at about 10%. And a lot of the people that you know I get information from are saying that a lot of the businesses are holding off until after the first of the year. There was a lot of issues with children going back to school, with the fact that people were working from home, and what the new model was going to be for businesses bringing people in. Are they gonna use an A-B scenario where they bring the group A comes in on Mondays and Tuesdays, Wednesdays a free-for-all day, Thursday and Friday on group B. All these are models that they're all looking at that we're waiting to adjust to. 
So there was a little disappointment that it didn't come back in a little bit quicker after Labor Day. We're all looking at what it's going to be like after the first of the year. And the other thing we're all balancing right now is the fact that there isn't additional funding coming in yet has put a lot of systems into where we're all looking at how long can we sustain with the money that we have, the, the services that are there right now. So talking about it from a customer perspective, there's, a, there's uh, more and more of our customers are coming back. Our intrastate, for example, on the rail system between New York, uh, between New Haven and Stanford is coming in around 40% now. So that's a major jump from the first nine to 12%. Mm -hmm. 40%, so our overall is only in the 20s, but when you talk the interest rate uh, is about 40%, going into New York City is somewhere between 12 and 15%, so that's where our overall average comes in of how it's growing. So we are seeing more on the intrastate side. On the highway side, which is the other end that you're always balancing against, people felt much more comfortable getting into their cars and driving in. Well, we're now getting to pre-COVID levels. New Jersey is already at pre-COVID level. Connecticut's at pre-COVID level. So with the cars getting to pre-COVID level, as more and more people are getting into the cars, you're starting to see those classic backups that ended up making people realize you don't want to spend all that time in a car driving in. So I think you know what has helped the Northeast is that the, the States in the Northeast responded very well to this pandemic in a way that they got everybody wearing masks. We've made it um, the critical factor in it, and it has proven successful. So I'm going to say, as more and more people believe that you can wear a mask and you can be protected, you know what's changed in terms of the largest customer complaint now going in is not wearing the mask. It's when they see somebody that has moved the mask down and they want to get the conductor to go after the person that's not properly using a mask to go and protect it. Yes. So yes. think about that in terms of other areas where they're still arguing over whether or not a mask needs to be worn. Uh, we've found that it has a direct correlation between making it, the, making it safer and for people willing to accept that and be willing to start returning to the service. And for uh, helping the customers to understand that it is safe to uh, to ride ride the rails uh, you know the 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 existing technology for HVAC systems is quite good as you as you mentioned uh, the air is exchanged in a rail car about every five minutes uh, just today uh, today is October 1st um, two stories went up on the railway age website uh, one one uh, described a uh, a station, an underground station ventilation system that's being used in Spain um, on, on one of the metro systems. Um, it's advanced technology. Uh, the other one is uh, is some new technology produced by um, uh, the Favely Transport, which is now uh, owned by Wabtec. And this is a a car, a new car ventilation system, and it just it seems to be a game changer as far as that goes. So it's probably a, a matter of just instilling that confidence in the customers that, you know, it's, you're safer, you're actually safer in a rail car than in, in, in your own car, quite possibly. Well, as 
as cities start to reopen and they begin to allow restaurants to increase capacity, the folks that are so eager to get back into a restaurant have no idea how how quickly the air recirculates there. And they're sitting quite close to people without masks. You compare that to what we do know about the circulation levels on rail cars, and uh, it's stark difference, and it should give people pause. Uh, I don't see it happening. Yeah, and I, and I think that as we're even designing our new cars, we are looking into, you know, what is our air exchange rate now? Is there a possibility that we can actually increase the efficiency with UV lighting? Um, we have not found that UV lighting works well for sanitizing seats and everything else, but we, and we're following the science on it. You know, we're, we're not, um, you know, just hit or miss on this. We're actually using the best minds in the industry and sharing the information between systems so that, you know, our next campaigns honestly have to be about assuring people that we're doing everything we can. Uh, there's an article out today in, in uh, the New York Times about the uh, subway system and how that's the cleanest it's ever been. They're constantly cleaning those cars, making sure that they're clean. Um, and people that are there are saying that the compliance with masks is somewhere in the 97 to 100% range, that everybody's wearing masks. And we've also begun campaigns. Rich had me in a campaign about three weeks ago where we brought Metro Man from Metro North to New Haven and had the Lieutenant Governor there. And we were distributing masks to people heading to the train, um, encouraging the use of masks. We're going to do another one this coming week. You know, where we're trying to make it very clear to people that we're there at our stations, we're there on our bus systems, distributing masks and, and letting people know, put on your mask, it's the safest way to go and travel. As far as New York City is concerned, uh, you know, after what New York went through, and, and New York was, uh, I, I remember Governor Cuomo referring to New York City as ground zero for for the coronavirus. And after what New York City went through and uh, I hope probably people, uh, people in the city or, or people who need to get in and in and out of the city, they said, we don't want this to happen again. So that's why they're, they're being, uh, compliant with as far as wearing masks and so on and so forth. Well, yeah, there's that. And you know, when, when Como was saying that at the same time, New York was being hit, Fairfield County was being hit extremely hard mm -hmm. as was New Jersey. So we all shared that. You know, so the western end of our state was the first part to get hit because they were the, they had the most number of people that were commuting back and forth into New York and the most interchange with New York. So, yeah. And, and as you know, it made that bond, you know, the, the, the governors are all speaking with each other and they're all trying to coordinate because you can't put in restrictions in one state and have people running across the line to the other state where it might not be there. So they've tried to coordinate that we're all doing things together. That makes sense. And if you've taken a look. All the states that are saying below that 5% threshold predominantly are here in the Northeast. I wanted to talk a bit about uh, partnerships. Uh, mm -hmm. You have the CONDOT has uh, partnerships with, uh, with, as we know, with Amtrak and, and Metro North. We, we've touched upon some of these. Um, uh, they're designed for increasing velocity, uh, impro improving uh, customer experience. Uh, and addressing first, last mile, multimodal issues, transferring to subway or, or bus uh, or what have you. Uh, uh, can you talk about some of these initiatives? Yeah, you know, yes, I can. Okay, and, and in fact, I'm going to enjoy it because one of the things that, you know, I, I learned when president of Metro North 
um, was that how our world has changed. Because of the cell phones, we know where people are starting from and where they're going to, not by the individual person, but by the patterns and, you know, the, the information is scrubbed before it goes to the federal government, before we go and get it. But, you know, prior to COVID, I could have told you on all the trains going into New York, how many of the people were going to the east? How many people continued down to Wall Street? How many went over to the west side? You know, and how many actually backtracked towards the north? Because we could follow the data usage of the cell phones and know how people were going. So, and when you talk about partnerships, you know, it really is a partnership. Right now it's a, you know, partnership here in the northeast. And it's also a partnership with our federal partners, both Federal Highway, the FRA, Federal Transit Administration, we're sharing information constantly. And even when I told you I was having a problem with the, the high-speed rail service on the Hartford line, the FRA was quick to turn around and they've actually given us additional funds to run additional trains on the Hartford line. So yes, there's a lot of partnerships and talking about that, you know, from the beginning to the end of a trip, We've made a decision here in Connecticut that we're aligned as well within our state with the Department of Housing. You can't keep making investment in housing without having it tie into mass transit systems. So what we're doing now is as we look forward to where the new developments are gonna go, aside from the fact of building them around train stations and rapid transit bus stations, we're also looking at where we can make the most sense in terms of providing the access to and from our rail systems. So Rich could tell you that very recently we had a kickoff again with the city of New Haven where we've totally revamped how the bus system is going to work, making access for bikeways. We're changing the roads that feed into the station down there, while we also change the bus patterns and make sure that those buses are now tying in and providing the fastest service to get people to either the hospitals, the rail stations, and the major employers so that way there you're making smart decisions on where you're going to put your housing, where you're going to provide, because we've already found out that the next generation is looking for livable, workable communities. And we have to respond to that by being responsive ourselves to make sure that what we're doing is putting those investments in places that they make sense. So yes, we have a partnership with Metro North. We discuss everything we're doing with Metro North and the MTA. We have a seven state partnership. And we have a partnership with our federal highway, federal highways, federal rail systems, and federal transit association as we look to go and make the best investments and show that the money that we're, we're spending, we're spending wisely to get the best return for the dollar on the, those investments as we go forward. So talking about funding, yes. uh, does staying relevant mean not assuming that support for rail and, and consumer preferences will stay the same. You know, it's a, you're, you're, it's a particularly sensitive discussion right now while we all are holding our breath to see what's happening right now in Washington. And, you know, I would say to you, staying relevant, you know, you're, you're talking right now, you've got the executive director from the Commuter Rail Coalition because we all know we have to be communicating constantly with Washington to make sure that it's understood what's going on. So staying relevant for, for uh, I'll, I'll use myself right now, means that I have to understand what potentially is going to be coming in for funding. I have to be ready to respond to whatever way it comes forward. 
I have to know right now that I have enough money to continue 66% of the trains maybe until sometime around the middle of next year. And I have to be focused on how are we going to go, be able to continue that level of service. And if we can't continue that level of service, what is the level of service we're going to be able to, to uh, continue? So relevant, relevant to me right now, the most important part of relevancy is making sure you're being informed, you're staying on top of, and you're communicating. So one of the reasons I was so glad that you asked me to, to be able to come and talk to you right now is because one, I'd like your readers to understand that, you know, we are following the issues, we're doing everything we can to work with the issues, and we need to make sure that our message is getting out there because we're looking at a potential crisis if there isn't some additional funding coming along as to what is going to be available for public transportation going forward. Yeah, and that's been uh, been made uh, very clear by uh, b by several agencies, uh, most notably the uh, the New York MTA. But uh, I, uh, would you agree that the the crisis or a potential crisis uh, is is really widespread? Uh, it's not just confined to the Northeast. No, it really is, and and you know, it's <laughs> I, I'm constantly you know. One of the things, the problem that we have here in the Northeast, and you touched on it when we talked about what was high speed, we're, we're the oldest of the areas, you know, some exception, you know, you got Second City there in Chicago and you got the West Coast, but so much infrastructure has been built up around what we have that it's very difficult to just go out and lay out a new system going in. When you talk about what, how we're all being impacted, we're sharing that na nationally. Um, the commuter rail coalition isn't the Northeast, it's the entire commuter rail coalition along the entire country, and we're all suffering right now. We're all suffering from the fact that people, you know, are not riding the systems. They're slowly coming back. We're trying to make sure that we're consistent in our message going across. And we've been struggling for a long time because for a long, long part of my history, it was always felt that there was plenty of money for highways, but we fought like crazy to try and get money dedicated to commuter rail and to public transit. That was a, it, it has continued to be an extremely tough battle. And I use a state like Connecticut where the Department of Transportation is evenly divided between public transportation and highway operations. That's not true in all areas. In a lot of areas, there's still a lot of room for growth and they put a lot more money into building roads. The future is not going to be whether or not we're putting money into roads or we're putting money into highways or putting money into to rail systems or bus systems. It's going to be how are we balancing it so that it's logical and it makes sense. So right now we're all suffering. And, and that's the, the good part about that is that the Northeast is not alone in petitioning to, to Congress, all right? The entire public transit system is petitioning Congress right now, saying we need help, all right? And so it resonates with all of our congressional delegations that we need to be doing things and we need to be doing them in the right way. And whether or not it's gonna be carbon pricing, whether or not it's gonna be incentives for, for you know, uh, making sure that we've used the latest standards in diesel operation, how much of it can we put to electrification? Uh, can we buy more cars like the M8s with the regenerative braking and making sure that we're being as efficient as possible with the utilization of, of energy at the same time? Because 
the one thing we do share is that we do have the love of the green philosophies going forward that we're doing everything we can to reduce the impacts on the environment as we go forward. So you're right in saying it, that it's not just a Northeast problem, but you know, um, I, I sympathize with the MTA. I talk with Pat Foy all the time. I know right now that they are looking at the fact that if they don't have an infusion, that the cuts they're gonna look at are very, very severe. And we'll be sharing in that, not at the same level, but we definitely will be sharing in that as will New Jersey and many other states that are looking at what's gonna happen if the funding goes away and we haven't started getting some additional funding coming in or looked at a different way of funding going forward because you know and I know that the gas tax is not sustainable. More and more cars are going over to either hybrid or electric. Matter of fact, Rich there drives a Tesla, so it gives you an example. He's one of the ones that pushes me and I definitely am putting in more of the charging stations. So, you know, we are looking at how the world is changing and we're all looking at what is going to be the sustainable way to go and keep funding going so that mass transit, which does make sense for a growing population, continues. And we in the industry, uh, we, we tend to be proactive on, on all these issues. Uh, the, yep. the, the problem is that uh, the uh, legislators tend to be reactive. Uh, and um, uh, how do you change that mindset, you know, to think, think past, you know, the next election? Uh, I, I might be being a little sarcastic here, but, you know, uh, but it, it's, it's the truth. I, no, I, I would no, think, you know. I, I, I'm going to say to you that, you know, um, right now I've, I've had, I'll call it the, the, the pleasure of having very supportive senators and, and Congress people here in, in our districts here in the Northeast. And even the fact that I told you before, when the Hartford line was going in, we had a congressman from um, Massachusetts, Richard Neal, who became extremely supportive. So I think, you know, uh, as an industry, we've got to keep supporting those legislators that truly understand the value of the services that we're providing and do think beyond, you know, um, what I'd call it is the state's personship that, you know, you know, it's not, you know, yes, all politics are local, but at some point, all those locals have to merge into these regions and these mega regions. And we have to be looking at that going forward. We have to be looking at what makes sense. You know, it's not whether or not it's the airline industry or the train industry. If we can agree that under certain miles, a number of miles, that high-speed rail makes the most sense. Beyond that, maybe airlines make the most sense. Commuter rail makes sense when the density hits a certain level. And, you know, um, you know beyond that, going to, to um, a subway system only makes sense in certain urban areas, okay, because again, you can measure out what the costs of each one of these are and what makes sense and what's gonna be the return on that investment going forward. So for me, one of the things I'm wrestling with and I did wrestle with down in Florida is the fact that you know forever we built systems and then let all the development take place around them. Japan, who everybody says, how come Japan makes money on their rail system? It's because the privatization was that they would give the land around the stations, they built malls, they built uh, hotels, okay, at their stations, and those all contributed and allowed for the growth in the high-speed rail system. 
Yep. So it wasn't that the rail system was making money off the fares going in. It's that the value was recaptured by the system. We separated it out. When Penn Central separated out the land use from the rail use, okay, they, they ended up that the land kept going and making money, but the rail, they just sunk down to where it needed all the, the federal support. We've got to get back to where we turn around and when we make investments in stations and we make investments in systems, that we get a return on those investments by being able to leverage the density, leverage the opportunity for business to come in. And that's exactly what we're trying to do in an area like New Haven, where we're now created a partnership between the city, the business community, and the rail system going forward. And I think that's part of the intelligent way that we look at it, not to turn around and say, we constantly are going to need handouts. We constantly need to look at what's the best investment opportunities going forward and how do we grow from there. Agreed. Agreed. And uh, thank you uh, for uh, uh, not being cynical. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Really, uh, it's very easy to be cynical these days. And uh, you, Joe, you uh, and you too, Rich and, and Kellyanne, you you are, you know, uh, you're you're looking at the bigger picture. I like to say maybe as a systems. What you're talking about, Joe, is a systems approach. Yes. You look at everything and how all the pieces fit together. You don't put things in in silos and and separate them out that way because does that doesn't work that approach. No, because you end up fighting against each other. That's that's mm -hmm. what happens with the silos, and that's why. You know, I do. I have to. You know, I have to be optimistic about these things. You know, I've, I'm, I'm in. I almost hate saying, but I'm in my 50th year now. Okay, so uh, you know, it's been a long time looking at the battles that we've gone through, and I really, really, if nothing else, I, I, I don't want to become cynical. Um, you know, it, it's it's too easy to become cynical, and I think that that isn't going to take us out of the problems that we have right now. On that note, uh, Joe Giulietti, uh, Richard Andreski, and Kellyanne Gallagher the Commuter Rail Coalition, thank you for joining us. Uh, we look forward to the continuing this series. I know, Kellyanne, you're working on more, uh, more for us. Of course, us. Uh, always. Uh, that, that, that's great. We, this has been a, been a terrific, uh, terrific exercise. Thanks so much uh, for joining us, and uh, have a safe day.